0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Loneliness is a public health concern, says Vivek Murthy. The former Surgeon General and author of Together says a lack of connection contributes to epidemics like alcohol and drug addiction, depression, and anxiety. So now that we're all using Zoom to connect, are we lonelier?
1: We allow physical distancing to translate into social distancing. And what we will experience will be a deepening of our loneliness. What we will incur is something akin to a social recession, which will have consequences for our health and for our well being that are just as serious as the economic recession we may be faced with.
0: But he says, it doesn't have to be this way. We can choose the path of social revival in the pandemic. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve the greatest challenges of our time. Today's discussion was held by Aspen Ideas Health. For his book Together, Vivek Murthy traveled across the world to discover why people were so lonely. He met with doctors, scientists, children, parents, and community members. He found that forces like technology, distance from loved ones, and the pursuit of individual goals can be isolating. Also, people are ashamed of feeling lonely, so it's not talked about. Murthy wrote the book before the COVID-19 crisis, but its message is especially salient today. He says we can use the shared experience of the pandemic as an opportunity to fortify and strengthen our connections and communities. He speaks with Olga Kazan, a staff writer for The Atlantic. Here's Kazan. First, can you can you walk us
2: through the definition of loneliness versus solitude? What are some of the symptoms of loneliness? What does loneliness look like?
1: You know, Olga, I did not anticipate working on the subject of loneliness and social connection or writing this book. I, in fact, came out of office with a couple of other books I had in mind that I wanted to write. But sometimes, you know, life leads you in a different direction. And in many ways, I was inspired to work on this by the people that I met around the country who through their own stories, well, they never actually said I'm lonely. They spoke to the deep, deep pain that loneliness brings and to the consequences that it has for our health and well-being. When I think about loneliness, uh, I think of it as quite distinct from isolation and here definitions matter. So loneliness is a subjective feeling. It's a feeling that the connections you need in your life are greater than the connections you have. And in that gap, you experience loneliness. And this is in contrast to objective measures like isolation, which, which more describe the number of people you have around you. But what we've realized is that you can be around many people but still feel profoundly lonely if you don't feel you can show up as yourself, if you don't feel people understand you. And that unfortunately is the case for so many people, including young, young people on college campuses, uh, people in new workplaces, or people when they move to a new city and around people that don't, don't quite have relationships yet. Uh, There's one last difference I'll mention, which is the difference between loneliness and solitude. Because solitude can also be a state of aloneness, so to speak. But it's a state of peaceful aloneness. It's actually a state that we all need to spend some time in. Because our solitude is actually when we have a moment to reflect, to let the noise around us settle, to reground ourselves, to recenter ourselves. And it turns out that solitude ends up being incredibly important for our ability to approach others from a state of groundedness, uh, from a place where we can truly listen to them and be fully present ourselves.
2: Hmm. I was wondering, um, I wanted to learn more about this uh, listening tour that you took as Surgeon General. Um, I'm curious about why do people feel lonely? I mean, what what are some of the causes of the loneliness that you heard as you talked to folks?
1: You know, it's an interesting question, Olga, because I don't know that people always knew why they were lonely, um, but many just felt it. In fact, I talked to many young people who, who would often say, you know, I, I'm i in touch with my friends all the time. You know, we, we're texting constantly. We're, you know, we're on social media a lot and we message each other and we post on each other's, we reply to each other's posts. We're interacting a lot, but yet I still find, somehow feel lonely and they were trying to figure it out. I met a lot of parents who were worried about their children. They saw them using devices all the time, including spending a lot of time on social media. And they wondered, is this making my child more connected or less connected? What was interesting Olga and how it showed up is that there was never somebody who came to me and said, hi, I'm Olga, I'm Vivek, I'm feeling lonely. What they would actually do is they would start by telling me about their struggles with addiction, about their concerns about violence. They would talk about, their worry about chronic illnesses like obesity, you know, being on the rise in their community. They would talk about depression and anxiety that they and their family members struggled with. But behind so many of these stories were these threads of loneliness. And they would often say things like, I feel I have to carry all of these burdens on my own, or I feel if I disappear tomorrow, nobody would care, or I feel absolutely invisible. And hearing that again and again from students and parents from fishermen in villages in Alaska to members of Congress in Washington, D.C. behind closed doors. I was reminded of two things, Olga. One were my own personal experiences struggling with loneliness as a child, where I found it painful to come to school each day because I was so shy and had such a hard time making friends that it just felt like an outcast. And the hardest part of the day as a child was lunchtime when I had to come to the, walk into the cafeteria and wonder if there would be somebody to sit next to. But it also reminded me, Olga, those conversations with Surgeon General about my time in medicine, practicing and caring for patients and recognizing once I entered the hospital that so many patients were actually struggling with loneliness too. They would come in alone when we had to make really hard decisions about a treatment course, or we had to give them really difficult news about a new diagnosis. I would often ask them, is there somebody I can call to have them come in so we can Have this conversation together and they would often say, there's nobody to call. I wish there was. And so I was reminded of those personal experiences when I was Surgeon General, but I was also taught by the people I met across the country and really around the world, that loneliness was not unique to my own experience, but that it was far more common than I had thought with more than 20% of adults in the United States struggling with loneliness, with a quarter of the Australian and UK population struggling with it. But that was also consequential that it had real impacts on our health, increasing our risk of heart disease and dementia, depression, anxiety, premature death, as well as sleep disturbances, and the list goes on.
2: I was wondering, um, so I, my book also briefly touches on loneliness, not to the extent that yours does. Um, And something that people occasionally say is like, oh, well, that's such a, um, like a middle school feeling or that's such a, um, and you mentioned school as well. and I, I do get the sense sometimes that people, adults are reluctant to talk about loneliness and, and it kind of comes off as like, oh, well, I, I, yeah, I dealt with that as a teenager, but I, I never deal with that anymore. You know, yeah. um, Why is there this stigma and kind of um, feeling of like, it's kind of strange or icky to talk about loneliness?
1: Well, there is this deep shame that comes with it. And I think it stems from, feeling that if you admit that you're lonely, you're somehow admitting you're either n- not likable or that you're broken in some way. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody really wants to feel that, you know, no, no one wants to feel like they're a quote unquote loser, which is what saying I'm lonely feels like to so many people. And it's what it felt like to me as a child, which is why I never told my parents all the, mm-hmm. in all those years. But I think as adults, we also feel that shame. But loneliness also, what's interesting about it is it looks different uh, in different people's lives. And even in our own lives, it can look differently at different stages. As a child, it may look like feeling embarrassed on the playground when you're not chosen to be on a team or being alone with your tray full of food in the cafeteria with no one to sit next to. But what's very interesting is you look at adulthood and what you find is that new parents often struggle with loneliness too. Because their lives are turned upside down. They're not seeing their friends because their evenings are with their newborn baby. Um, they're not hanging out with, with co workers because all of their spare time has gone toward family now. And they often don't feel comfortable saying that they're lonely because it somehow feels like they're ungrateful. They've just been blessed with this child, and yet how somehow they're complaining about their loneliness. Um, so, you know, new parents struggle with this. And what's interesting is that older people, especially older men, are especially at risk of loneliness when one of three things happens to them when they retire, when they lose their spouse, or when they become ill. Mm-hmm. And the way loneliness so often shows up in the lives of elderly men is not the, in the ways I've described before, it shows up as irritability, as anger, short temperedness. And you, the, way, the more you look at it, you realize that in some people, anger is a manifestation of loneliness, in other people, it's withdrawal. In other people, it looks like depression. In some, it looks like anxiety. And so if we don't recognize that loneliness is, in fact, the great masquerader, which looks like anything but uh, a person sitting in the corner of a room, all alone at a party, then we'll likely miss it. So the combination of those different manifestations and the shame around loneliness makes it an invisible challenge. And so so many of us walk around feeling lonely, but we look around us and think everyone is deeply connected. And that's not the case.
2: Right. And I, um, I, one of the things I I wanted to make sure to get into was, um, kind of how this increase, you know, we've seen two trajectories in the country. One is an increase in polarization and one is an increase in loneliness. Um, and I can intuitively see how, you know, people each being in their own bubble, um, you know, could contribute to loneliness. But I, I I was wondering kind of how, how do those two play out? How does loneliness cause polarization?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And there's an interesting link here because it turns out that one of the important things that you need uh, in order to truly build community and to truly have dialogue is you actually need a foundation of human connection. And here's why. When we have a relationship with somebody else, meaning that either they're close friends or they're family, or they're simply... A neighbor or community member that we've spoken to for five minutes openly and authentically and connected on the basis of shared concerns or our children or our careers. When you have any type of relationship like that, it makes it easier to listen to someone else. It makes us more willing to trust, to give them the benefit of the doubt. And that makes dialogue easier. And and dialogue is what makes it possible for people to come together and take on big problems, whether those are how to support the schools in their community, or how to solve global problems like climate change. And so as we have become more distanced from one another and more disconnected, as our institutions that support community connection have shriveled, in a sense, over the last several decades, what we've seen is that people have become more and more siloed, that they interact with folks who think more and more like them online. They don't have a reason to interact with people who maybe have a different life experience who might be literally their neighbor next door, right? But they don't have to interact with them. There's no need to. And so people have become more and more siloed. And so they've built fewer relationships in their communities, which means that they're less invested in their community, which also means that they can't work together as easily with others. And this has deep spillover effects. It starts locally, but it has national and global implications. And so if you want to build greater dialogue, if you want people to actually be able to solve problems together. The way you do that is not by bringing people with polarized views together, putting them in a room and telling them to talk out their views and find common ground. That might seem logical, but it's actually not how human beings work. We're much more emotionally driven creatures when it comes to relationship. So if you want people to come together around tough issues, you have to start with building relationship first, and that may have nothing to do with the issue itself. It may be them breaking bread together, getting to know each other, establishing a foundation for trust. But once they do that, they're more able to listen, they're more able to dialogue, and that is how you start solving problems. That is why the polarization we're dealing with in the world today is actually not just an American phenomenon, but it's a global phenomenon. Because so many of the factors that are impacting us and in fact weakening our ties with each other, whether that's how we use technology or whether that's mobility or whether that's certain norms, in modern culture, which tell us that our self-worth is connected to our ability to acquire wealth, power, or fame, all of those are actually facets of global modern culture now. And that's why I think we're also seeing a straining and a weakening of relationships and polarization that comes with it.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Local elected leaders are in the eye of the storm when it comes to the upheaval caused by lockdowns, surging unemployment, and food insecurity. A new series from Aspen Ideas Now features mayors and governors facing tough decisions. In the debut episode of Leading on the Front Lines, New Orleans Mayor Latoya Cantrell describes what's at stake as the city reopens for business. On Saturday, um May the 16th at 6 a.m., uh, we officially uh, reopened the city through phase one. Uh, we allowed or loosened restrictions around our retail and our restaurants. Cantrell talks about priorities like contact tracing and healthcare accessibility with CNN's Suzanne Malveaux. Find the episode on our website, aspenideas.org. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Olga Kazan.
2: I feel like we're in such a difficult time for, um, for loneliness. I mean, we're kind of right now mandated to stay apart from each other. Um, a lot of people, you know, they might be trying to reach out through Zoom or whatever else, but some people are experiencing Zoom fatigue. Um, you know, it's not quite the same to Skype with someone as it is to sit down over a drink or dinner. Um, what should people do about loneliness? How should they reach out and build those connections during a time of social distancing?
1: Well, it's a great question, Olga, and I do want to acknowledge, yeah, it's hard, right? It's it's hard for all of us. You know, there, there are times that you walk around when you're having a hard time, you look around the world and you say, gosh, everyone's living the dream. They seem to have amazing parties they're going to, at least based on their Instagram feed. They seem to be happy all the time. But this is one of those moments. And first of all, that's generally not even true. Like half the time people are struggling and you just can't see it. But this is a moment where we know just about everyone is struggling in some way to make sense of what's happening to Right, their world, which has been turned upside down in so many ways. And so as we think about how to build connection this moment, I think we have to recognize what the, what's at stake, stake. So if we do nothing differently, if we allow physical distancing to translate into social distancing, then what we will experience will be a deepening of our loneliness. The, what we will incur is something akin to a social recession, which will have consequences for our health and for our well-being that are just as serious as the economic recession we may be faced with but i don't think it has to be that way i think we have a choice here we can choose instead of a social recession we can choose the path of social revival and the way we can do that with covid-19 is to one use this as a moment to step back and take stock of our lives to recognize the importance of relationships and how foundational they are to our health to our well-being and to our overall fulfillment. And to use this as an opportunity to recommit to the people in our life. Even though we can't see each other right now, there are concrete things we can do. We can make it a point to spend at least 15 minutes with the people that we love. That could be video conferencing, calling them on the phone, writing to them to say, hey, I'm thinking of you, I wanna know how you are. And even though that's not the same as being in person, when done consistently, that can serve as a lifeline to the outside world. And the second thing we can do is we can focus on the quality of the connection with others. Even if we don't spend a single minute more with the people that we love, if we make it a point to eliminate distraction when we're talking to them, if we give them the gift of our full attention, that can be an extraordinary way of deepening the satisfaction that we feel when we're with them and the connection that both both parties feel. That's an easy thing to conceptualize. It's not always an easy thing to do. I say this as somebody who has spent far too many conversations multitasking and scrolling through my social media feed and checking my inbox and Googling a question that pops into my head while I'm talking to somebody. And, and I say that with some embarrassment and I I know now that that has been counterproductive to what I was trying to achieve, which is quality time with my friends. The last two things I'll mention that we can actually do uh, are third, we can look for ways to serve now. So one of the surprises for me in writing this book was to discover that service is a powerful antidote to loneliness that when we are chronically lonely, we develop these counterintuitive tendencies um, because we feel this sense of threat at being alone. Our attention turns inward. We actually become more hypervigilant and more suspicious of people around us. And we tend to experience this erosion of self-esteem as we come to believe that maybe we're lonely because we're not likable. Service is powerful because it short-circuits those mechanisms. It reaffirms uh, for us that we have value to bring to the world, but also, Shifts our focus from us to someone else in the context of a positive interaction. These three things are extraordinarily powerful, but simple tools that you can use to strengthen connection. And when you add them to the fourth and final one, which is solitude, the importance of preserving moments of solitude in our life, these form the foundation for connected life. You know, we talked a little bit about sol- solitude earlier, but solitude is so powerful because so often in this, <clears throat> in the modern world, which is racing faster and faster in a world that's filled with uncertainty, particularly during COVID-19, we can walk around just feeling drained and frazzled all the time. And when you approach other people from a place of being drained, it's harder to form a great connection. It's harder to feel that sense of fulfillment that we all wanna feel when we interact with others. But what's really striking about solitude is even a few moments of solitude, just a couple of minutes, sitting outside on your stoop, feeling the breeze against your face. A few minutes remembering three things you're grateful for or meditating or praying or reading something that brings you joy can be restorative. I had a teacher in medical school, uh, Dr. Peggy Bia, who had a really busy life as a mom to two amazing kids, a teacher, an administrator, a clinical leader. But what she would do, having not a whole lot of time, is she would take the 20 seconds that she was washing her hands before she walked into a patient's room And she would just let the warm water run over her hands, take a deep breath and just think about the things that she was grateful for that day. Maybe it was the smile that her boys gave her when she said goodbye that morning. Maybe it was the appreciation of a medical student that she taught earlier in the day or the opportunity to participate in the healing of the patient she was just about to visit. And then she would turn the faucet off, dry her hands and walk into that room feeling more rooted more grounded and more capable of bringing her full self to that interaction with the patient. And that was all with 20 seconds. So these moments of solitude are powerful, not because of how long they are, but even because short moments can make a big difference in our life.
2: Yeah, and I um, I wanna make sure to take some questions from uh, the audience. And and one of the first ones that popped up is, is pretty interesting to me, actually. I, you, um, you think that the UK is doing a better job of addressing mental health than the US is, um, based on the fact that I know they had like a loneliness ministry for a while and, and things like that. How, do you feel like they're making more progress than we are?
1: Well, I think there is certainly ahead of us in making addressing loneliness and social connection a national priority. Uh, Their appointment of a minister who would have loneliness in uh, her portfolio was a step in that direction and it sent a strong signal to the country and frankly to the world that loneliness is a a national priority, that it's a strategic issue that we have to work on if we want to improve health, if we want to improve economic productivity, if we want to take care of people. And in that sense, we have not done that yet as a country. We haven't elevated the issue in that way. This is actually an interesting place where government has a unique role that it can play. See, what government can do is, number one, it can fund research on areas like loneliness, which have been vastly underfunded over time. Number two, it can identify issues as a priority and call the nation's attention to them. But the third thing it can do uh, is it can also help bring people together and set a common agenda and a vision for what we should be doing to create a more connected society. The government has played roles like this in the past, whether it's developing a national strategy to address HIV or other concerns, but that's a really powerful role that's very difficult to replicate outside of government. And it's a role I would love to see our government in the U.S. take on.
2: Yeah. Um, I was wondering, so another, another question that, that came up that I have also been wondering about, um, why is there a resistance in healthcare to um, Seeing the connections between emotional health and physical health, and how do we go about changing that?
1: Yeah, that's such a a critical question. And because it goes beyond loneliness, as you're alluding to, Olga, right? It's this deeper, it's a discomfort, I think, is what it is that many clinicians have with thinking about our emotional well being as being connected to health. And I think that some of that comes from a long history of thinking about. The body, the mind, and our emotions vary separately in, in silos, uh, even though the research increasingly tells us how deeply connected they are. That's where that term that we've all heard uh, that says it's all in your head comes from, right? It's almost, it's a pejorative way of saying that your symptoms are in your head and hence they're less important. Whereas we now realize that what is in your head has a profound impact on what's on your body. But I do think, Olga, that this is starting to shift. It's shifting with a new generation of nurses and doctors who recognize the powerful connections between our our heart, our head, and the rest of our body. It's shifting because of a growing body of research, uh, including the research on loneliness that's telling us that there is in fact a connection between our emotional state and how we feel, and even on biological markers uh, that indicate disease or wellness. And what we have to start doing now is figuring out how to translate that growing recognition into practice. So what does it mean now, or what should it mean if you're a doctor encountering a patient who's struggling with loneliness? What's your responsibility there? How can you identify loneliness in that patient? How can you connect them to the right resources so that they can get support and help? Those are the questions that medical schools and hospitals and nursing schools need to start grappling with. And my hope is that, and part of the reason I wrote this book is I, I want us to accelerate a more global conversation on how we address loneliness, recognizing it's not just one of many other illnesses that we have to think about. And in fact, it's not an illness at all. It's a natural state of being that all of us experience. But I I do believe that social connection is an extraordinarily powerful resource for our healing. I've realized in the research I've done and the writing of this book that Our social connection enables us to live healthier lives, to perform better in school and in the workplace. It augments our level of fulfillment. It is in many ways the force multiplier that we often look for in our lives. And we have some many times taken that for granted just because it's been around for a long time. So we tend to get fascinated with new medicines and new medical technology, thinking about the improvement it can make in our health while we forget about the tool that we have had for millennia, which is the power of our relationships. And it's time for us to recenter ourselves on relationships, to build the people-centered life and people-centered society that I think we were designed to live in the first place, but that we are called to reclaim now,
2: a um, final question from the audience here, an interesting one given these times. Um, how do we help young children cope with and make meaning of loneliness, especially given the limits on their social interactions with others um, currently with childcare and preschool and things like that being um, shut down for the time being?
1: This is such a good question. And I, I say this having two kids myself who are three and two, and we we struggle you know, at times to figure out how to explain the pandemic to them had explained explain to them why they're not able to see their friends. My we were just doing music class uh, a couple of days ago um, you know, before the long weekend with my my two kids and my it's a music class that we'd normally be in person attending. And my son, who's three, looked over at me. And he just said, as he looked at all the other kids on the screen, he said, Papa, we can't see all of them because of coronavirus. Right. And I just broke my heart because, you know, he just they both love seeing other children. And I know many of our kids are in the same spot. Um, I think there are a couple of things that are really important as we think about this moment, though. One is to recognize that um, the stress of this moment, and there is a tremendous amount of stress, affects all of us of all ages. That just because children may not show it, the transition and the the upheaval in their own lives will just manifest in, in different ways. In some kids, it may be that they act out more, and others, their sleep may be disturbed. Others may have may regress in terms of their potty training. There are all kinds of different ways in which this manifests in children. But what is important I think right now is for us to make sure that we are doubling down on the quality of time that we are spending with our children. Even if we have less time to spend with our kids, making it count by being fully present with them has never been more important because that is a grounding force in the lives of our children. The second thing that's important is to recognize that our, as somebody told me before we had our first child, uh, is a good friend who told me, your kids may not listen to what you say, but they will listen to what you do. And our kids do look at us and learn by example, uh, whether we like that or not. And so to the extent that we can model uh, a people-centered life by prioritizing time with friends and with family, by checking on neighbors who may be struggling, uh, by reaching out, Uh, to a friend who may be having a hard time we set a positive example for them too and we can also encourage them to do the same i've seen very encouraging stories of of young people who are actually getting together with friends to find ways to serve those who are in need in their community whether that's making masks for people or delivering meals to them Um, these acts of service which you know are powerful antidotes to loneliness are especially powerful when we do them together with others and that's a powerful way that we can help our kids find ways to feel and experience connection in this difficult time. So I know that our time is, uh, has come to a, a close. Um, I, I wish we had more time for questions, but I, I do wanna say that, Olga, that one of the reasons that I, I have found this topic to be so compelling, uh, and I say that because you, you hear the word loneliness and you think, gosh, is that gonna be a dark topic? But I began the book writing about loneliness, but I ended the book fascinated by the power of human connection. It has struck me again and again in listening to the stories of people I met along the way, uh, whether it was the woman I met in Dallas uh, who has created these this something called a friendship table where she brings people together for meals once a month all over her neighborhood, or whether it was Serena, the college student I met who created, it was a, de- you know, a, an introvert who had a hard time meeting people in college, but created these Uh, events called space gatherings where people could come and show up and be vulnerable and open and forge strong connection. As I've seen and heard these extraordinary stories, I've been reminded that one, social connection is an extraordinary resource that many of us lose sight of. But two, social connection is how we're wired. And the, the movement to live a more connected life is not an effort to transform us into something we're not. It's an effort to return us to who we are, and have always been for thousands and thousands of years to beings who are interconnected, who depend on each other, who need each other. And there is no shame in that. In fact, there is much to be gained in, in recognizing that. I do worry when I think about my kids and many of our kids that we are raising our children in so often in a society that tells them that relying on other people is a sign of weakness and that tells them that they're worth as human beings is tied to their ability to be successful, which often means their ability to acquire money or fame uh, or power. But I believe what we have to remind our kids of, as we remind ourselves to build a people-centered life, is that their worth as human beings is grounded in something much more intrinsic, which is their ability to give and to receive love. That is where their worth as human being comes from. And that's true for us as well. And the most tangible way that we experience that love is through relationships. That's why our relationships are our source of affirmation. They're our source of grounding and meaning and our greatest source of joy. They're the touchstone that we return to during difficult moments. And so my hope coming out of all of this, my simple credo uh, for this book is just three words. It's put people first. And my hope is as I move forward in my own life and think about how to create a meaningful life for myself and set an example for my kids uh, is to try to think about how to live, make people the priority in my decision-making about where I put my time, energy, and effort. And if we do that collectively, then we will start to build a people-centered society where we design curriculum in schools to strengthen connection, where we design workplaces to strengthen relationships, where we even think on a public policy level about the impact that our policies have on community and connection and that kind of people-centered world, that's the kind of world where I believe all of us and our children will thrive.
2: Beautifully said. Um, Well, thank you so much, Vivek, and thanks everyone for joining us.
1: Thank you, Olga.
0: Vivek Murthy served as the 19th Surgeon General of the United States. He's a physician and entrepreneur, His latest book is Together, The Healing Power of Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. Olga Kazan writes for The Atlantic. She's the author of Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World. Their conversation was part of the 2020 series held by Aspen Ideas Health. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you listen to podcasts follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and programmed by the Aspen Ideas Health team. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.